The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So today is the fourth Sunday in the Lenten season, which is this 40-day period leading up to Easter on the church calendar. And it's a time where we focus on the care of the soul and we prepare to celebrate the coming of Christ. So if you've been around the last couple of weeks, either in person or online, you know that we're dedicating our teaching time in these weeks to celebrations in the life of the church. And this week, we're going to look at the celebration that's known as Sabbath, which is a holy day of rest. So several years ago, uh, Sean had just finished writing his first book. And I don't know if you've ever written a book or if you've ever been married to someone who was writing a book, but it's quite intense. And it's quite a labor of love and blood and sweat and tears. There is edits and copy edits and there are rewrites and there are early readers and there are early editions that you have to tear up and write all over and send back. And there are more rewrites and there are deadlines that seem impossible to make. And there are very late nights that turn into very early mornings and it requires a lot of coffee and patience. And after four or five years of Sean working diligently on this book, it was finally finished. And we got our first box from Amazon of copies of his book and we were thrilled. We decided that we would go out to dinner to celebrate, just the two of us. Um, We had just moved to Houston when his first book was published and with the kind of, all the ways that a move is involved and all the ways that we had been trying to get settled in Houston and that was right around the time that Harvey hit, we had not been out together in a couple of months, just the two of us. So we were really looking forward to the time together. I was looking forward to just being in a situation where we didn't have to talk about the book, right, and the publishing industry. So we sat down at this new to us restaurant we've been wanting to try and we ordered our drinks and I kind of sighed and I said like, you did it. Like 15 years ago, you told me you wanted to write a book about this topic and you did it, like you're published. And Sean said, I know. And I got this great idea the other day and I thought we could talk about the next book proposal. (laughs) And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, we can't just take a moment to celebrate this book. It's immediately on to the next idea. But like you, we're products of our culture. And it's a culture that teaches us that better, more is always better. And that you are what you've accomplished and what you can provide to other people. So if you've written one book that was in an Amazon top 100 list, you need to write a second one and see if you can make it in the top 25. In your workplace, part of your motivation to do well on one project might be so you can be asked to join the next one, because it may come with even more notoriety and maybe a bigger bonus. I don't know how much money you made this year, but I'm pretty confident that there's something or someone in your life that's telling you that this year, you should make more. Our world equates busyness and a full calendar with success and significance. And I actually get this, because one of my favorite activities to do every year is to pick the paper planner I'm going to use for the following year. Because I love to make lists and I love to plan I love to check things off as I complete them. 
Before I leave work every Friday, what I do is I sit down and I open my paper planner and I flip through the daily sections and I look at all the things that I've checked off. And I assess the quality of my week by how many things I've completed. And when I'm done with that, I immediately pull up next week's calendar and I make sure I'm not missing anything and I make sure everything is aligned and I start preparing for what I'm going to need to do on Monday because I love to plan. I mean, about a decade ago, we took our girls to Disneyland for the first time and I equipped everyone in our family with a schedule for our first day in the park. I had engrossed myself in learning the map of Disneyland. I had studied the fast pass system, which if you're not a Disney person, is the system where you can go and you can get these special tickets that let you go to the front of the line, but you have to time it just right. I'd studied that system. I had asked everyone to give me their top two things, like what are the two things you have to do for this to be a successful trip? And I combined all that information I mean, am I fun or what? I mean, <laughs> please have me plan your next vacation. Here I am. And I came up with this schedule that was color-coded, and everyone had a copy of it in their pockets. And by 10.30 on our first morning in the park, the Palmers had done everything on their must-do list. And because of that, I earned the title in our home of being the mommy genius. I remember thinking I had mastered Disney. And more than that, I had conquered our time. And time is actually what Sabbath is all about. See, in modern Judaism, the practice of Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday evening. And it concludes an hour after sunset on Saturday. Sabbath is a day that is set aside for rest with limitations on the work that can be done. There's no cooking, there's no cleaning, there's no going to the office, whether you have to drive to get there or just go down the hall. There's no driving. And in the strictest of Jewish practices, there's not even the flipping on of a light switch because that's too much work. Sabbath is a day to focus only on union with God and union with people and to practice the simple art of being together. Just as important as this practice of Sabbath is the preparation for Sabbath. And in his book that's called The Sabbath, uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel talks a lot about what Sabbath means to the Jewish community. And his daughter wrote the foreword for this book, and she explains what Sabbath was like at their house when she was a child. And she talks about how Friday afternoons were a time of just preparation. There was the making of bread and the pouring of wine and setting the table and making sure that there was food for the following day because there would be no time for preparation. And she explains that 20 minutes before sunset every Friday, the work stopped. And everyone went to the dining room for the lighting of the Shabbat or Sabbath candles. And this is the ritual welcoming of the Sabbath day. And anything undone was simply left behind. Can you do that? 
You leave dishes in your sink overnight? You leave your bed unmade? Could you leave dirt on the floor? Could you wait 25 hours to respond to an email, even if it's from your boss? Could you wait 25 hours to respond to the ping on your phone that you have a new notification? See, in our world, the people who get raises and promotions and recognition are the people who get things done. And we want to be people who get things done. We raise our children to be people who get things done. No one wants their child to come home with a potential life partner and say of them, oh, I totally loved him because he never finishes anything. He doesn't finish classes. He doesn't finish his papers. He quits his jobs. I'm an educator, and few things in my classroom frustrate me more than when I get work that's not finished. When our teenagers were little girls, I would help them clean and organize their room sometimes. And when we were done, I would take a picture of what their clean room looked like. And I would post that picture on the inside of their closet doors. And I would say to them, when daddy and I tell you to go clean your room, if it doesn't look like this, you're not done. But when the goal is to be done, then we're always doing. And for the people of God, there's always been a rhythm of leaving things undone. There's an end to the doing. We are not intended only for our work. We're not made to move from task to task or from project to project or from spreadsheet to spreadsheet. Your children are not designed to go from school to practice to games. Did you know that it really is okay for you and your family to just be at home with no agenda? It's actually helpful in cultivating closeness and learning how to be together. We're designed for a rhythm of work that is followed by rest and work that is followed by sacred rest, not mental health days here and there, or a vacation that involves a lot of travel and a lot of activity and color-coded schedules. But this practice and this discipline of regular ritual rest that reminds us of the holiness of time, that time belongs to God, and time is a gift of God. The practice of rest is modeled for us by God in the creation narrative. The opening verses of scripture in Genesis tell us that God worked for six days, speaking the natural world into existence. And then on the seventh day, he rested and God declared the day holy, meaning it was set apart for something other than work. The Sabbath is designed for us to be free from the distractions of work, to care more for our souls than our productivity. It's a day to focus on what is lasting and what is eternal, rather than what, on that which is temporary. Rabbi Heschel describes it this way. He says, for six days a week, we wrestle with the world, wringing profit from the earth. On the Sabbath, we especially care for the seed of eternity 
planted in the soul. The world has our hands, but our soul belongs to someone else. If you continue the journey through the story of scripture, you'll see many instances where God gives the Israelites instructions about Sabbath. Pastor Chris referenced one last week when he talked about the Israelites being wandering in the wilderness and the manna that was provided for them each day. They were to go out in the morning and to collect manna that would appear on the ground, but they were to only collect enough for that day. It was daily bread. But on the sixth day, they were told to collect a double portion and to go home and prepare it. And miraculously, it would not spoil overnight, but it would be good the next day because the seventh day was for rest. There would be no gathering. There would be no preparation. And we see more formal instruction about Sabbath given to Moses in Exodus 20 when God gives him the rules that we call the Ten Commandments. And the fourth commandment says to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You're probably familiar with these verses in Exodus that offer this first look at the Ten Commandments. It's kind of that famous image of the big stone tablets and Moses walking down the mountain. But do you know, do you remember what follows the story of the Ten Commandments? It's more commandments. Eleven chapters, in fact, of specific instructions on how to treat other Hebrews, on how to treat foreigners, on how to treat women, how to make an altar, how to make a sacrifice, how to best care for your ox, how to build the tabernacle, with detailed rules about the creation and placement of the Ark of the Covenant and its specialized covering, what can the priests wear in the temple? What should their garments be made of? The lampstands, the curtains, the table of offering, the kind of oil, the time to use incense, and so on and so on. In my Bible, it is 13 pages in that little Bible print of instruction after instruction after instruction. As God gives the last of these instructions about the altar of incense and the roles of priests, his very next words to Moses are these. The eternal one instructed Moses regarding the Sabbath, saying, speak to the Israelites and tell them, you must be careful to observe my Sabbaths, for the Sabbath day serves as a sign between me and you for all generations, so that you will know I am the eternal one who has set you apart from all the other nations. Keep the Sabbath because it is a sacred day for you, different from all other days. Anyone who violates the Sabbath or defiles it must be executed, and anyone who works on the Sabbath will be cut off from the community. You have six days out of every week to do whatever work is needed, but the seventh day is the Sabbath, a day set aside for rest and only rest. It is sacred to me. Anyone who works on the Sabbath must be executed. Therefore, the Israelites are to keep the Sabbath and celebrate it throughout all their generations as an everlasting covenant. The Sabbath exists as a sign forever of the covenant between me and the people of Israel. For I made heaven and earth in six days, but then on the seventh day I stopped my work and was refreshed. Early in God's instructions to the Israelites, Sabbath is mentioned, and then God comes back 11 chapters later to this idea of Sabbath as he ends his discussion with Moses. I wonder if you ever do this 
Because as I looked at this, I realized I do this as a mom all the time. I will give a list of instructions, and then at the end, I come back to something I said early in the list just to make sure it doesn't get lost. Remember, I said to empty the dishwasher. Remember, I said to vacuum. I repeat the one thing that I want to make sure was heard. And it seems God may be doing this very thing in his discussion with Moses, returning to instructions about the Sabbath, emphasizing its importance and how it leads to a faithful and healthy life. It's true that God has given us our work. And like the artisans that were gathered to build the tabernacle, we are all blessed with talents and abilities that align with tasks that are needed in the kingdom. But God continuing to remind Israel of the Sabbath suggests that no matter how worthy or essential or holy you may think your work is, your work may not be as important as honoring Sabbath, even if you're building the tabernacle. God's comments forecast that Sabbath observance will be a sign, a lasting sign between God and his people for generations. Do you have signs like this? I bet you do. The church in which I was raised had a sign like this, and it was called Sunday Night Church. I don't know if any of you grew up in systems that had Sunday Night Church. But when I was growing up, we went to church in the morning for Bible class for an hour. Then we came to a worship setting like this for about an hour and a half. Then we'd do some kind of potluck or gathering. We'd all go home for four or five hours. Then we'd come back that night. And it wasn't the way Ecclesia used to do evening services, where it was just a repeat of the morning. It was a totally different service. We had this whole section of the hymnal that my friends and I called Sunday night songs, because you only sang them at Sunday evening. And it was a new sermon. I liked it because at Sunday night church, girls could wear pants. And we didn't do that on Sunday morning in the church I grew up in. The other thing that was unique about Sunday night church is that it was probably about a quarter or a third of the number of people who had been there on Sunday morning. And even in my five and six-year-old mind, I knew. I knew in my body that those of us who were there on Sunday night like we were the real deal. <laughs> we were the real Christians. These were the people who were serious about their faith and serious about Jesus. These were the people who were not going to sell their souls to the world. Throughout much of Jewish history, Sabbath practice and observance has been marked in this same way. It's the mark of the faithful. You know you're a good Jew if you are practicing Sabbath. So it's no wonder that the people who, wanted to who were threatened by Jesus and wanted to discredit him were watching him really closely on the holy day of Sabbath. See, violating Sabbath was a statement to the world that you thought you were better than God, that you knew more what you needed than the being that created and designed you. It was a sign that you didn't think you really needed connection with your community, you were good on your own. And time after time in the Gospels, the Jewish leaders see Jesus healing and loving people on the Sabbath, and they go on the offensive, hoping that they can paint him as being blasphemous and thinking that he is better than God. 
In the second chapter of Mark, Mark records one of these situations like this. He says, one Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a field of grain, and as they walked, his disciples grew hungry. They began to pull from the stalks and eat, and the Pharisees confronted him. Did you see that? Why are your disciples doing what our law forbids on the Sabbath? Jesus responded, do you remember the story about what King David and his followers did when they were hungry and had nothing to eat? They said nothing, so he continued, David went into the house of God when Abiathar was the high priest and ate the bread that was consecrated to God. Now our laws say that no one but the priest can eat that holy bread, but when David was hungry, he ate and he also shared his bread with those who followed him. The Sabbath was made for the needs of human beings, not the other way around. So it may seem in some ways like Jesus isn't resting on the Sabbath. But really in this text, Jesus is doing what Jesus always does, which is showing and revealing a truth about who God is. And God values life. If you don't remember anything else from today, remember this, that God loves people. God loves you. And God wants you to love other people. Which is why the Sabbath was made for humankind. Jesus' words remind us of the intent and the purpose of Sabbath. It's a way for us to care for ourselves and a way for us to care for one another. Sabbath is a day focused on relationships and connection as we tend to souls so that all beings may flourish. Sabbath is a time for us to tend to mental and emotional well-being. Rabbi Heschel taught that it was a sin to even be sad on the Sabbath. And his book says it was he, that he would teach that it was a double sin to be angry on the Sabbath. I didn't even know we could double sin. But it doesn't sound like something I want to do. Because the Sabbath day is about dwelling in God's presence, it's a way that on earth we can have this glimpse of what heaven and eternity will be like. And in the fullness of God's presence, there isn't space for sadness or for sorrow. Focusing on the goodness of God and our union with God can allow some of our pain to fade. I don't want to be naive. I don't think that if you take five hours this week and, and decide to focus on the goodness of God, that all that you grieve and all that hurts you will suddenly disappear. But I do think that if we focus more on God's goodness, that pain might fade just a little. And the intensity might be a little less and there might be a little more room for hope. What would this week look like for you if you took just the rest of today and focused just on the goodness of God? How might your family relationships change if you didn't carry frustrations from last week into this week? Would you be a better friend, a better neighbor, 
a better parent or a better partner or even a better employee or boss if you took several hours a week and just refused to give in to your anger? How would you be different if you entered this week, if you started tomorrow, having already forgiven everyone who wronged or offended or hurt you last week? Our oldest daughter actually has a practice about this that we've kind of come to appreciate. When she thinks about someone who has wronged her or who's upset her or who's offended her, she says their name aloud and then she follows it with the words, and they are God's beloved. Earlier we talked about the beginning of Sabbath in the Jewish tradition and how it's marked with a specific blessing and the lighting of candles. Sabbath also has a specific ending. In that 25th hour, those who gather for the Shabbat dinner the night before gather again for a four-part blessing that prepares the community to end this time of sacred focus and to prepare to return to their work in the world. The blessing bringing an end to Sabbath practice is a blessing of separation. And those gathered together will toast to the day and say these words. Praise to you, O Lord our God, sovereign of all, who distinguishes between the holy and the ordinary, between the light and the dark, between Israel and the nations, between the seventh day and the six days of work. Praise to you, Adonai, who distinguishes the holy and the ordinary. Participants in this blessing then turn to one another and they exchange a Hebrew farewell, the words Shavua Tov, which means, may you have a good week. May it be a week of peace. May gladness reign in your heart. May your joy only increase. And this is our prayer for you, Ecclesia, that you will not just find time, because you're not just going to find it, but that you will create time for holy rest this week, that you will enjoy your work, but that you will find some hours where your soul may be refreshed where you may honor the time that God has given you by letting go of the things that are temporary and seeking only those things that are eternal and that are lasting. May the love of God and the peace of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and guide you today and always. And for your week, I say, Shavua Tov. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.